I tell you what, what my plan is when I turn like 60? Because I'm really healthy. I'm going to buy a motorcycle and ride it without a helmet. And adopt a bunch of cats. <laughs> no! Hello, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jobber, as Chris would say. Oh, come on! <laughs> okay, JavaScript Jobber. And today, we are going to talk about pair programming with the panelists. We have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. This is SolarJS coming at you live from sunny Provo, Utah. And Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, hey, it's the Vanilla JS guy. And I'm going to kind of be carrying us along today. And I'm Amy Knight. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So where do we want to start with this? I know I would like to talk about pairing at work, pairing in interviews, the good, the bad. We got to start with defining pairing because this is something that means different things to different people. Like there's formal pairing processes that have like acronyms that, you know, like the TDD type things. And then there's, what was it? PDD, pair driven, you know, and then there's like, there's casual pairing. So first of all, let's, let's talk about what are, what is pairing? What are the types of pairing? Yeah. So for me, I say pairing, which is probably less formal. But for me, pairing is I am sitting down or standing up, whatever, at my computer. And I have something in front of me that I need to do. And there's like two of us looking at it together. That could be I mean, it could even be like a bug that you maybe have like been looking at for a while and can't seem to make progress on. And so you pull in somebody else to kind of look at it with you. But I think the more formal definition, and we did this in our boot camp, and I think we did it in the JavaScript portion too, but definitely I feel like it's really popular in other programming language communities like Ruby, but where somebody writes the failing test and then you pass over the keyboard to the other person and they write um, the code to make it pass. Ooh. So that's what it is to me. I love pairing, but we can get into that later. I'm curious what y'all's definitions of it are. Well, I actually have a question about your definition right out of the gate, Amy. So, you know, you kind of mentioned the whole you're, you're standing there, sitting there with someone kind of working together. And maybe we table this, we'll... AJ and I share our definitions, but I'd be really curious to hear more about what that looks like for folks who are remote, especially yeah. like you know, teams that are partially remote or even like like companies that are, are fully remote. Like how does that how does that yeah. work? What does that fundamentally look like? I think for me too, at this point, I've probably worked remote more than I have in an office. Same. And I I love being remote, but Usually, like when I was at WB, we use Screen Hero Bunch where both people can control the screen. 
at NPM, we use Zoom and you can't control the other person's screen, but like truly at that point, one person will drive and share their screen so other people can see. I've also done, this like deviates a little bit from your question, but I should have added it earlier. Sometimes to me pairing, there's like one person, it's hard to tell who's doing more of the work, the person who's actually at the keyboard or sometimes in a sense, like if you're, I've seen like super junior people where the more senior person is kind of like telling them what to do, but having the junior do it rather than them doing it. And I feel like that's really valuable for a newer programmer because you're going through the motions rather than just having like the senior take over. But anyways, back to being remote. Yeah. You could do screen hero where you share uh, or just one person like drives and shares their screen. Yeah. So I think that, well, that's what I do most is when I'm pairing. Well, I mean, I pair locally and I pair remote. I find a lot of value in the rubber duck style pairing where you're stuck on a problem. You've been working on it for like, you know, 15 minutes on your own. You know that it shouldn't be this hard. You're missing something. You grab a buddy and you say, hey, do you mind just, you know, sitting with me? You're kind of familiar with this code base a little bit, or even if you're not familiar with this code base a little bit. And let me just explain what my logic is and what I'm thinking and tell me if you see anything wrong. And like so often, you know, a problem that, I mean, I think it's good to pull somebody in if you're sitting at a problem for 15 or, you know, somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes and you haven't, you haven't solved it. I think it's good to pull somebody in. Don't let it go to an hour or two hours. Cause most likely so agree with that. you pull that person in and then within five minutes, it's going to be done. But I mean, if you did that every time you were stuck on a 15 minute problems, you'd be bothering people all day long. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I, I think it can be really good for that. And then I also enjoy the longer sessions of kind of just keeping a line open uh, where you're working on something, the other person's working on something. Maybe you've got a shared TMUX or a shared screen session going on, as well as you've got the audio and possibly a screen share as well. So you can both type a little bit. You can be like, oh, wait, I need to go do this. Uh, I need to do it over here. Oh, wait, I think you missed it here. You know, you can give that that live feedback where you can kind of go back and forth between, okay, I'm going to work on this part of it. Say, I'm going to work on the test, for example. Okay, I'm going to work on the thing that's going to pass the test, then come back together, debug it together. I don't know that I would really enjoy the formal pairing so much, but that very fluid style of pairing, I find to be incredibly valuable, especially when it comes to user experience. Because as somebody that is a little bit more senior, when I'm pairing with someone who's a little bit less senior, and I get to see like the way that they think about something, the way that they approach something, it helps me to then understand like, oh, this is what the documentation should look like. And oh, here's how the API is broken from a user experience perspective. The API should be different or these should be named differently. That kind of stuff I find extremely valuable. Absolutely. I see this all the time with, um, so like I run this, this JavaScript training program thing. And one of the one of the pieces of it is office hours where we review projects and things like that. And kind of what you just described where stuff that was obvious to me because I've been working with it for a little while and is less obvious for my students is just so eye-opening. One of the things, I, AJ, Amy, I want to ask both of you. So when I've done pair programming as a junior and I've worked with more senior people, it usually gets approached one of a couple of different ways. Um, one of them that I think we already mentioned is where, you know, like someone more senior directs you on what to do. I know there's also the style where you could watch someone who's more senior actually complete the work. One of the styles I've personally found most 
useful for my own learning though was like I remember once being really stuck in this terrible bug and this senior developer in our team she came over and um rather than telling me the answer she just kept asking questions to kind of help me dig deeper into it myself and eventually get there and it took her way longer than it would have otherwise to just give me the answer but I learned so much more and so like AJ Amy in your opinion like what's the What's the right balance there? Like, when do you use that approach? When do you just kind of give people the answer or let them watch? Like, how do you find that right, that right mix? I've had to do this in like interviews too, when you're interviewing someone, because you want to see like how far they can get, which is kind of difficult. But I would say optimally, you would be pairing with someone who would be aware enough of their own limitations that they would be able to speak up when they were stuck. But if that wasn't the case, I don't know, like part of me thinks I would almost wait for the person to say they're stuck, even if like there's a spectrum there and some people are going to probably ask for help sooner than others. But if it's a person who is going to wait to ask for help, I almost would rather like wait for them to ask than to step in because I feel like that's a valuable lesson to learn when to ask. Because on the, on the flip side of that, if somebody asks too soon and, and like I feel like they potentially haven't, they're not super struggling, I might say like, I don't know, I, I wouldn't like fully step in. I would just try to figure out a teeny, teeny, tiny tip to give them and just be like, I, I think you're really close. Try this one thing. I don't know. It's hard. It is really hard to do as a senior developer. Like I run to this with my students where I just want to like, if you see them struggling, like, you know, that them figuring it out themselves is going to help them like really retain it so much better. But like, you just want to jump in and be like, but just do this. It's so, you know, it's, it's, it's right there. But those learning moments really come from going through the struggle yourself, I think. I totally agree on the point of, of learning points. So I'm, um, I'm more of a monster. I'm a little less empathetic, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a pragmatist. So I think that when that time comes really depends on the relationship. Like if you are functioning as a teacher, I think it's different than when you're functioning as a coworker or when you're working on open source projects together, because uh, like for me, so I'm just going to take the example of open source. 90% of your time dealing with people in open source is completely wasted. Because mostly what they want to do is say, hey, I've got some weird edge case where I'm doing this thing and what I want doesn't work and I want you to fix it for me and I don't want to pay you and I don't want to look at the code, right? Now, if you get as far as pair programming with somebody, they're not that bad, right? But I like to be a little more tough on the, on the one end. You know, if it's, if it's open source, like make sure that person's willing to dig a little bit because like I, like I want to help them solve their problem even though it's not my problem, but I don't want to get sucked into their problem, right? Like I want them, I want to help them help the community at large. And that's different than, um, you, you know, so I might give more straightforward answers rather than just saying, oh yeah, I just dig through the code to find this. If they demonstrated a little bit, they're willing to go at all, you know, like a little bit of tough love up front. But if they demonstrate like, yeah, they're willing to go a little bit at all, then I want to help them quickly because I want them to have that emotional feeling of, of return of value. Like, okay, I did a little bit of work. I got a little bit of value. I feel good. I want to try this again. I want to get them hooked. You know, it's like, it's like cocaine, you know, you play hard to get, be like, no, I'm not giving you any of this. But once they take it and they like it, you're like, all right, just take more and more and more. 
The other thing that's super valuable too, I think if you're able to do it is if time allows, let the person who's stuck step away for a little bit, maybe like, like have them ponder it in their self-conscious overnight and see if um, they're unstuck in the morning. That's valuable too, for sure. Well, so we can keep talking about this, but in a minute too, I want to get to like in y'all's experience, the code quality that comes out of pairing. Cause I think now we're talking about it more as how valuable it is to the individual, but I want to make sure we talk about how valuable it is to like the business or um, the code base, that sort of thing. Well, I've got a train that's going and it's not off track yet. Totally noted. I want to give it around to that too. Cause I've got, so if it's a working situation, like how, what, you know, you have to gauge some of the business value, like you're investing in someone and you want to get a return on that investment. So you have to gauge kind of their level of experience and where they're at and like what roles they're going to be fulfilling. And there's the emotional aspect where you want to make sure that the person feels included and da, 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 da. And then there's, you know, there's the pragmatic aspect of how important is it for this feature to get completed sooner rather than later. And, you know, you want to help people get familiar with the code base because, you, the, you know, you have a few more people over a section of code, you're going to get it done faster, work, work value is going to increase. But I would say I'd probably be a little bit quicker in, in the workplace to help help get the person to the right answer because, I, I mean, it's a balance, but I think that there's a little bit more in we want to produce this feature according to the policies that are in place, it's not as exploratory and by not policy per se, but like, you know, code style and patterns and whatnot. And uh, so you, you want, you want some exploration, but you want the person to also become familiar with the way things are done. And then I'd say, I don't remember what the, th- the third thing I mentioned was, but I, I would just say a variation of what I've already said. It's just about, to me, it's just about what the relationship is what you're, what the investment that you're putting in, you're trying to get out of, is it friendship? Is it business value? Is it community and kind of gear things so that you align as much as you can and be okay with a little bit of waste. Cause if you aren't, then you're just going to be a D bag and no one's going to like you. I gotta be honest, AJ, I was not expecting that ending. <laughs> Turns out Chris, that's what happens when you behave that way. People don't like you. <laughs> Can I also bring up another thing before we talk about the code base that is a little bit related to what we're talking about right now? Yeah, yeah you can. You are in control. What about, have you guys ever heard of mob programming? Yes. No. <laughs> that, Tell me more. I need to change the word because it sounds super aggressive, but we did a little bit of this at MPM, like, and, and maybe my definition is different from y'all. So AJ, I'd be curious about yours. But to me, mob programming is like you get a, more than two developers together to tackle a problem. I tend to be a little bit less sure of the value of this to the business. It's to me super valuable to the engineers, but I don't know how valuable this is to the business because I feel like it's easy to get distracted. Whereas like pairing one-on-one, it's not as easy to get distracted. But uh, so mob programming, I don't know. Like I've seen it if you have like a super tough bug or um, like something on call and something goes down and you're trying to just get as many eyes on it as possible. And I don't know, that's kind of interesting too, because it's a delicate shuffle of like, people need to know when to be quiet and 
let the people who seem to be most aware of what's going on drive and like you need to let them focus and if you have like a bunch of people on the call it can get hard but I don't know I haven't seen mob programming done except for like more complex code so I want I want to enter into this first with a controversial anecdote to what I was talking about previously that kind of leads into this so there's also situations where you really don't want to pair program, you need to get something done. And the other person is their time, their exploring is both A, beneficial for them on their own, and B, less costly, and C, is going to lead to other objectives that are more important getting completed first. Because there are problems where like, it's the mythical man month, you hire someone new, they don't know enough yet, you've got two choices, you've got to train them, which hopefully if you're hiring someone, you're not doing a crunch. Because if you are during the crunch, it's a terrible time to hire. You're, you're, you're just going to slow things down. But then there's times when you, you need to train and there's times when you need to focus on what's going to bring the value the soonest. And you just kind of say, actually, we can't pair right now. You're just going to struggle through this and it's going to be hard. But I need it's more valuable for me to spend this next hour getting this goal done than it is for me to stop and help you get something done in five minutes that's otherwise going to take you two hours. It's okay to waste the two hours right now. Like That's legit business is, and, and it's not, I mean, it's, it doesn't even take away from the person necessarily. They still get exploration. They just may not get that reward as quickly as they would like. And then once that time has passed and that objective's met, then you can, you know, you should switch and you shouldn't always be that way. But sometimes it's okay to, in my opinion, it's okay to be that way. So with mob programming, I think the most important time for mob programming where it brings business value is any time that you would be having a meeting and it turns into vote by committee. Because that's when, if you switch to mob programming, if instead of you instead of saying like, oh, well, the API should look like this, or the API should look like that, or this data structure is what we're probably going to need. If you just get someone sitting in front of the keyboard and start prototyping it right then and there, you can clear up so much miscommunication because code is easy to understand. It's discrete. Words are not easy to understand. And even the whiteboard is something, because all the whiteboard is, is just boxes with squiggles on them. You know, and you, it makes you feel like you're talking about the same thing, but it doesn't mean you necessarily are. When the code's there, you understand exactly what's going on. So I'm, I'm a huge proponent of basically prototyping mob programming, and it doesn't even need to be real code. It's probably best just to do pseudocode. But that is where you can get everybody's ideas on the table. You can get people aligned and on the same page and really drive a lot of value. I, I can see the value of that, but I'm also um, like kind of my... Because my spidey senses are tingling. Like, I, I admit, I've never done this. And obviously, AJ, you have. So, you know, tell me to sit down and shut up. But I would be worried about two things. The first is prototype code that's really not fit for production moving into production. Because if you write the code, people will try to ship it. Coupled with, um, you've gone from, like, almost, it, or it sounds like you're going from design by committee to, like, develop by committee. And I'm not just at face value, having never gone through it, I'm not convinced that that's necessarily better. But again, I totally agree with what you're saying about code sometimes being clear. I went through this recently where like there was a lot of back and forth on how something should work. And I threw together a quick prototype that I shared with people. And once they saw something working, they're like, oh yeah, I get it now. So I totally, I, I, I agree with you on that value. I just, I'm having a tough time, I guess, grokking how having more than a couple of people working on the same thing simultaneously would like work in any manner of efficiency. Well, I think it's, 
it's the alternative to the worst inefficiency. So I don't disagree with your points at all. In my experience, the kind of stuff that, that I've done where there was multiple people, it was pseudocode. It didn't turn out to be real code. It was, it was more pseudocode. But it took us away from talking about problems and hypotheticals to moving towards a solution. And yes. that gave us focus. <laughs> that and, is so important. Yeah, that makes sense. I would not suggest that mob programming be like a something you should plan on doing once a week. I, I mean, I don't know. If somebody else, had, I don't have that kind of experience with it. And I, the things I'm considering of mob programming, I don't think other people in the room necessarily would have considered it that way. It's just like, I tried to drive things from, okay, we are out in the weeds. We need to focus. If I can get a Word doc up that we can each see on our laptop and people that are on the call can see and we can start pseudocoding, we're going to get focus and we're going to be productive. Because, you know, when you get more people involved, the, the more nodes there are in the network, you know, exponentially, you're increasing the complexity of communication in the network. And so when multiple people really do need to be involved, I, th I, th I just see it not as necessarily a good that you should strive for, but as a less evil that can help you get on the right path. And not that I'm saying it's evil, just that... No, 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 that, that makes sense, though. Thanks for, um, thanks for clarifying. Amy, did you have something else to say in that vein? No, not on that. Do we want to talk about, like, the code base now and the business? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is part that I feel pretty strongly about pairing-wise is I do feel that it is really valuable for the code base and the business in general, and I wish so, so much that organizations would realize the benefit in it. Like I think there is obviously a cost you pay upfront because you have two people working on the same problem. And I'm specifically talking about pairing. I don't, I don't feel as strongly about mob programming, at least in regards to this, but the code is usually so much cleaner, the like easier to build off of in the future the code review process is almost like built in so that when you do have to put up a PR for code review, it goes by super fast because you're just like doing that as you go. I think it helps you kind of like for me, whenever I'm working on something a little bit complex, it's almost like I have like a stack in my brain and there's only so much that I can put on it at one time. And I might have to like I don't know. It, it like lets you spawn off another process because if you need to like go look at the API of something, the other person can do that while you're able to stay focused on the same context and it enables you to go faster that way and like stay engaged into the problem without having to like step away and then, you know, go back down. So I just think it's beneficial on so many levels. I'll let other people weigh in. <laughs> I, I would definitely argue for the business value of pair programming. Again, I I don't know, like as a methodology, like on Tuesdays, we pair program. Like, I think that might be good to get yeah. people used to it and to see the benefits of it, like more of like a training cost type of thing. But I think that pair programming should happen naturally between people that work in the same scope of work and that have, you know, camaraderie and trust because it's, in the open source world, I think it's something that will naturally develop with the people that you're friends with and that you, um, you know, you trust. And I think in the business environment, it takes a degree of trust to be vulnerable because, I mean, 
I think it does take a degree of vulnerability to expose your stupidity and your mistakes and whatnot. And that has to be, I, I mean, I don't think I've ever been in a place where that's not culturally appropriate. Um, but I could imagine that there probably are places out there where that historically hasn't been culturally appropriate. And if that's the case, I could see something standardized as part of like a policy change to be like, hey, we're changing our culture. It is okay to be dumb. It is okay to have done stupid things that you're not proud of in code. And so, but I think there's, I just think there's a ton of business value that really you're not wasting two people's time to get one person's job done. Unless it's one of those times, like I mentioned before, where like the priorities are such and one person just needs to waste their time. I, I think in the general case, it's going to deliver more business value for fewer dollars and fewer hours than otherwise. And you, you brought up derailing a little bit. You brought up something that I wanted that, that caused me to think. So another, another type of pair programming, working on different problems in the same scope of work. So like you're working on the, the UI, maybe mostly the CSS and HTML, and I'm working mostly on the JavaScript. And I say, okay, I've got the little debouncer ready. Do you have the little widget ready or something like that? That might be a little too close because maybe you're even working on stuff in the same file in a situation like that. It could be you're working on the front-end JavaScript, I'm working on the back-end JavaScript or Go or Ruby or whatever. And so you get a cadence of like, hey, I've completed task A, B, and C. I'm now ready for your part that's going to test those and confirm that they're working as expected. I'm going to go work on part D while I wait for you to catch up. And you can leapfrog each other back and forth. And throughout the day, uh, you could sync up, uh, you know, maybe around lunchtime or whatever. And then, so you do a little bit of uh, more of that idea of keeping the line open where you're working on something that's similar in the same scope of work. You're working mostly separately, but you've got a line open to each other to quickly communicate and get that feedback loop tight and accurate. That feels like that would work really well for um, remote teams where people are located in different time zones too. Like, you know, if you have a East Coast and West Coast development teams or some folks in the US and over in like Europe or India or, you know, it's a little harder when you're literally like complete opposite, you know, like it's 12 midnight while it's 12 noon or whatever. But, um, but I, like, I like that approach, AJ. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that a lot. And I think uh, going back to open source, if you've got an open source project and you're struggling with, I mean, like if you are fortunate enough that it's popular at all to where you're actually getting people commenting on things, I would definitely highly recommend pair programming with people because you've got the different time zones, you've got the different cultures, you've got like, you have nothing in common other than that you've got some code you both have interest in. And I have I just recently, I just started this, but I've started kind of making it a policy that if somebody actually seems like they want to contribute, I want to pair with them so that we have FaceTime with each other and so that we, you know, we can go through code base. And I know that it's not going to be super productive that like maybe two lines of code will change, but I'm hoping, you know, it'll prepare them to actually be a meaningful contributor where they feel like they got value. And, and I feel like I got value and that it was worth my time rather than just having the comments go back and forth and then end up with, they didn't understand me or thought what I wanted was too stringent, which I don't think that's usually the case with me or, you know, whatever. Amy, one of the things you mentioned that I, I was kind of curious about, you said that in, um, in your experience, pair programming results in code that's um, 
I forget the exact phrasing you used, but something along the lines of like either more logical or more like well-formed. Um, yeah. What do you think about pair programming leads to that? Um, so there's multiple things, like especially I think as you get more and more senior, if you have two seniors trying to look at something, you're going to get, I feel like a solution that is more, I don't know, like more generic, whereas... I think a lot of times people, as they get stronger, start to become a little more like stylistic about their code, which is if you're on a large team is not a good thing. And so, so there's that, there's, you know, you just have like the built in of like, when I'm naming something, you know, this person is right next to me. Does the name make sense to them? I don't know. It's like, it's just always valuable to have a second opinion. I think, at least for me. <laughs> I definitely, uh, when we're ready to, I, I have some good stories on like pair programming gone wrong. <laughs> so I would, I would love to hear that. I want to edge another thing, yet another okay. thing in on this topic. I found that pairing with juniors has been helpful for me. And I, I mentioned this before, but just because it, it helps you to focus on user experience. And I think user, user experience, unfortunately, in today's buzzword topia has become something that people think is associated with UI and pixels, which it is completely not. And if, if you are conflating those two, you are creating terrible experiences that I hate. And I see them all the time. People are like, I'm a great UX person. Look at this UI. It's like, it is pretty in the way that a flower is pretty. It is also functional and the yes. way that the flower is functional. UX <laughs> like, has a lot to do with performance and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah. So I, I think that UX is something, to me, UX is a mindset that you have throughout your product from the UI down to the database and UX should drive decisions and pairing helps you see other people's perspectives and helps drive good UX. I have a buddy that I love pairing with. Uh, I'm going to be completely honest and he listens to the show, so hopefully he doesn't get offended. He is not an excellent programmer, and I don't think that he ever will be, but I think he's okay with that because his goal is to get crap done, and he is amazing at being able to solve his problems. They're not the way that an experienced coder would solve them, but working with him really helps me to dumb things down and keep them simple, and I try to keep things stupid and simple, but occasionally, probably more than occasionally, I get clever and in pairing with him, it helps me realize like, ah, I'm being clever here and I don't need to be. This could be simpler. And I really, really appreciate that. And it, it improves the quality of my code and it improves my ability to reach community. And that's all I had to say on that. So we can move on to your story if you want. Cool, cool. Yeah, so then I've had like the case of just like pairing gone wrong multiple ways. Like, I I think the most challenging for me has been I was in a situation once where I was working with someone and I would say we were pretty close to the same level and we paired for a good solid couple of months like was like on the calendar to do this like once a day and I ended up driving like probably 90% of the time and it was making me a bit frustrated. So driving, you mean the technical term driving and pair programming? Yeah. Like, so I was the one like 
at the keyboard, typing, leading, and I wanted to... Oh, I thought driving was the one that spoke and the typer was not the driver. I've seen it, yeah. So I've seen it, like, done both ways. um, Okay. Where, yeah, there's, like, the person who is just typing and the other person is kind of, like, saying what to do. And that's more, I think, of a situation when... Um, it's more of like a junior senior thing and the senior has like a lot of the knowledge and they're communicating that to the junior who's actually typing. But this was a case where we were like both at the same level and my personality tends to be like very focused and, you know, like we have pairing time on the calendar, like let's get to it. And so then the other person was not quite as focused. Like they were very like they were knowledgeable and good and, you know, knew what they were doing, but not quite as motivated per se. I don't know if that's the right word to use. Not quite as focused, I think would be the the best word to use. Like um, they could kind of get off, off topic easily. And so I don't know, like I had to go to my manager a little bit to like not throw someone under the bus, but just ask like advice about how I can help the other person to be more focused because I just always felt, like I was the one doing all of the work most of the time. So I'd be curious, like, how would y'all handle that? Have you ever been in a situation like that? I don't know. Like I started getting a little resentful, which is not, I don't Just know. Why I like hated a, team projects in high school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did feel like a team project. Like, I don't know. And like when we were pairing and this was remote, like, I don't think they were really paying attention. <laughs> and so I was like, if I'm going to like do all this, I'd rather just like stop sharing my screen and do it myself. I don't know. It's frustrating. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So I've had experiences pair programming where it's been like that on either side, like where I haven't been focused or the other person hasn't been so focused. And I feel like a lot of the time, the reason that happens is like very natural and that the reason for pair programming has exhausted itself. And so the focus is drifting elsewhere. You know, like if you're, if you, so let's say for example, that you had decided artificially that you're going to pair program together for an hour. The problem that you need help solving might only take 15 minutes. And then you're just kind of doing some mundane things that are really one sided think work. And so if you try to keep pair programming when the the context of the task has shifted mentally where the focus needs to be, I, I mean, I think that's just, it's the responsibility to call that out and say, hey, I don't feel like the two of us is really productive on this task anymore. I'd like to go back and work on my task in, in this realm if you're comfortable continuing on in this task from here because it seems like you are. 
and I'd love to check back in in an hour or two and like get a review of the progress and, and understand how things are going and keep a line open if there's any, any problems during the time forward. To me, that is the right approach when you're starting to feel like either you or the other person is losing focus. Just draw it out and label it. Do you think that would have worked in your situation or do you think your situation is just like being irresponsible or something? I don't know. I, I think it was more of like the person, um, it was a complicated situation. I actually know a little bit more to the backstory of it, which I could even get into if we wanted, but they needed like, they, you know, they had like severe anxiety, ADHD, all that kind of stuff and had stopped taking their medicine. So it was so they were on an improvement plan and you were there to help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't, I can't speak but, to them. I don't I know. I mean, I have that. a lot of, like, I have sympathy for that. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. It was a challenging situation. I don't know that we really ever came to a good resolution there. We ended up like just the nature of the situation. The teams kind of got reorganized and um, ended up not being the, like I, I wasn't working with them anymore. So it was fine. But I don't know. Like I, I have a big heart and I always want to like figure out how I can help the person because I had respect for them and thought like they were a good developer. They just had a hard time focusing. I don't think it's imperative that any given two people always work together well. I think that it's fine if you discover the, like it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Like someone doesn't have to be morally wrong for two people not to work together. It sounds like in your case, it was something where either the two of you weren't, you just didn't work well together. You didn't jive for some reason to be a personality or code style or whatever, or maybe they just kind of were a lackey and what do you do? Yep, yep. You want to hear my bad experience? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, because there's so many good ones. Like, I've heard people talk about, like, smelly. Like, if you're in the same office, one person's, like, breath smells, like, all kinds of good so, stuff. <laughs> so this is where I invited a person to pair program, and it somehow became a very offensive gesture. So on, on Twitter, which we all know is where sane, rational people communicate effectively and kindly, <laughs> Chris... <laughs> Um, I'm kind of a jerk on Twitter sometimes. So this person tweets at me uh, and says, hey, thanks thanks for uh, recommending Gitty. That's the Git platform that I use. I uh, really liked it. And I don't remember what it was in regards to, um, but some somehow, you know, we, we had a tweet back and forth. And then I was having a really good time doing um, some pairing with a friend and no, actually it wasn't that. It wasn't that yet. I ended up pairing with him later on something different, but I was just kind of, I was in a mode where it's like, I know I need to get this done. This is some open source work. And like, I'm, I'm half motivated to do it, but I just need a little extra motivation. If I had somebody to like talk through the problem with and figure out how, like what the right solution would be for this patch, it would help me get motivated and I'd get it done. So, so because this person had said, Hey, thanks for the recommendation. I tweeted out and I was like, yeah, you're welcome. And this was a couple days later, but I just remembered it. So I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. And uh, I'm about to do some some work on the authentication UX for this. Uh, and I, if you'd like to pair, I'd love to do that. And the person said something back like, eh, it's the weekend. And then I said something back like, real coders code on the weekend, like hashtag weekend warrior, it's some stupid thing like that that I thought was clear that it was like, I was just teasing. And then the person got, really offended and there might have been a couple more tweets i I may i may be you know omitting something where i did something that was obviously offensive or wrong i don't feel like i did but the person like the the, like it just started to be this like 
you know, why can't you take a hint? No means no back off. Like, I don't know what you can, you're assuming from my previous tweet with you, da, da, da. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you are taking offense where none was intended. Like I, uh, I was reaching out just, just trying to be friendly. And you know, so many, I don't know. I wish like, I wish healthcare would just provide like free therapy to everyone. <laughs> well, I think it could have been like a cultural problem. Like this person yeah, I think was from Australia and you know, there's, there's different phrases that we use that can sometimes mean different things or come off as more aggressive or, or um, like polite ways to say no. Like I hate polite ways to say no. No is the most polite way to say no. I'm not interested is the most polite way to say I'm not interested. Anyone who tells you otherwise is an idiot and you should fire them. I actually spent some time in Australia and I always found them more direct than we are here. So I actually find that kind of interesting. Well, he became very direct, but I don't, I don't know. It's just, it was so strange to me because I thought this is just a friendly gesture and, uh, you know, I did, I, I didn't feel like I asked twice per se, but like after he said like, no, you know, I, I said, oh, well, you know, if you ever want to do it, just let me know. I, I totally, because it sounded like, because some people have the, what, what they call it, the imposter syndrome where they're like, oh, well, I'm not a really good coder. Therefore, like you, I wouldn't be valuable to you kind of thing versus, you, you know, so, so just like kind of leaving the door open to be like, oh, I'm, I'm fine if you're not really good at it. Like, I just want someone to pair with the Anyway, just it was it was a weird situation. It made me feel bad in the sense that I don't, I don't know. I guess my feelings were hurt. I was kind of confused. I thought I did a nice gesture, and, and that's it, the worst. Like when you think you're doing something nice, and it totally like gets interpreted as you being a jerk. Yeah, but then but then because I was a little offended, then I was I don't know maybe a little passive aggressive in one of my comments, and you know I shouldn't have done that, but I don't know. I just I was caught off guard, and I just felt bad both ways, but. I think you can be successful in tagging people that are interested in one of the projects you're doing on Twitter and, and asking them to pair a program. I don't think that's universally how things would generally go. But in this particular case, and I, and I tagged somebody else in a GitHub issue and they were willing to, but our time zones didn't match out. But it was somebody that was in a related issue to one of the threads of a patch I was working on. And I was like, hey, if you're free today, I actually want to work on this. And, and that, that seemed like a very friendly conversation and it would have gone well if it weren't for the time zones just being out of alignment. That's, that's my horror story. It's not that bad. So um, we had talked a little pre-show about like pairing in the interview process. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Tangentially touched on it a little bit while we were chatting, but is that an area we wanted to explore? Yeah, yeah, let's go into that. Oh, man. So there's people who say like, it's a pairing interview, but let's get real. Most of the time, pairing interviews are not pairing interviews. There's like, you're driving, doing everything, and the interviewer is like watching you, and it is the most nerve-wracking experience yes. in the entire world. I've got <laughs> a story understand. here that I think is pretty common. This, this actually happened to me, and they're like, oh, no, it's just... Just relax. We just want to kind of like check out your vibe and see how we'll work well together. And it's like, well, you guys aren't like doing anything. To me, this is more like, this This is more like an individual performance review. Like it reminds me of skating where I like take the ice and I have like a panel of judges and everyone's like critiquing my every move. But which is fine. It is what it is. You know, we all know like interviewing is broken, but Let's not call it pairing interview if it's not truly a pairing interview. As the interviewer, you, I mean, like if you're a new interviewer, you got to have the perspective of 
people are not going to relax no matter how much you tell them to relax. And they're probably going to perform worse in this, you know, environment they're not accustomed to than they would normally. And if you, I, I think it's a good thing to give people the option of a take-home assignment as well, because you get to see, or in tandem, because you get to see what they're really capable of, not how they fumble over their words and their thoughts when they're under pressure. I love that idea. I don't think anybody has ever done that where you have the option of doing take home or, you know, let's, I'm not going to call it pairing or like live code in front of people. Depending on my circumstances, I typically prefer the like, let's just block off an hour or two of time and just do it because I get extremely busy, like I have my job and then I have a million other things on top of that, speaking and the podcast and life things. And so I can't always like block out a huge portion of time to do a take-home assignment because to me, a take-home assignment isn't just like solve this problem. It's get the build system in place, add all the tests, add functional tests, add unit tests, Unless it's like a take-home assignment of like just a single function or, or like a collection of methods to, to try to do a task, um, that's more reasonable. But anyways, yeah, pairing and interviews, that's – I've had one good situation where the person doing the interview like kind of started and then they had me finish and that helped me feel a little bit more comfortable. I also think – I've had interviews on, and I've been, you know, the interviewer and the interviewee where I think it's really valuable if someone is doing well or someone just does one positive thing to make sure that you acknowledge that because it helps put the interviewee at ease to know, you know, just like the positive feedback on both ends. Because like as the, as the interviewee, you know, everyone tells us that we should be vocal and share our thought process, but it can be really, really hard if the interviewer is just like stone cold silence. <laughs> yeah, that's a tactic too. Uh, just from, I remember from my time in HR, I used to talk to recruiters about stuff like this and they do that for this BS reason of wanting to see how you perform under pressure. And it's like, yeah, but this doesn't really simulate how I would actually perform <gasps> under pressure in like a real world kind oh. of, the HR oh. recruiting process is just such a hot mess. It's I have fundamentally broken. I have another story about interviewing and Honestly, like this just turned me off from the entire interview process where Did you ask you for dinner, Amy? Is that what you did? (laughs) No, no, no. That would happen to Amy. That would (laughs) I would have. I would (laughs) have. No, like I appreciated that they reached out to like help me prep for the interview process. But as I gained more information about the interview process, I just thought I don't know if this is really a place where I would want to work. Like they specifically told me to spend a couple weeks on, uh, I, I might've been like code wars or something like that, which, which is cool. I don't mind that at all, but they specifically said time yourself and see how fast you can go. And that's the part that like gave me pause. Like I know as developers, we, like we have a job to do and usually like we can't we can't take forever because like time will fill the you know like the the work will fill the amount of time allotted 
So we can't take forever. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't know if A, I want to work in a code base where time is something that is like always in the back of the engineer's mind and they're having to like rush through things. Um, Everyone knows, Amy, you get the most business value when people know that every second counts. It just, I don't know, like A, I don't want to work in a code base that has been built around that and B, I don't want to work in that environment because so they I wouldn't have semicolons. They would have saved on all those paper presses. <laughs> like, I don't I just, that I, I know for a fact I'm not going to do my best job when I'm under pressure, like time pressure like that. Now, if the maybe I should have asked more clarifying questions from the person that was reaching out to like prep me for the process. Like I think a better way to go about it would have been like, why don't you work on Code Wars and for if you do five problems, one of the problems, time yourself to see how fast you can go. Like that's reasonable because sometimes you do have to move fast, but just like flat out all, like if it's all about timing myself, like maybe even a better answer would have been like do code wars and, and add some tests. Like it's just not, uh, I'm ranting now, but yeah, you can see why I have very strong feelings and that just, I was pretty excited about the interview process there. And that just completely turned me off from it. One of the things I've, I've learned to get better at as I've gotten more seasoned, a little, little grayer around the beard, um, starting to pay more attention to the cues companies give you during the hiring process about how terrible or not they're going to be to actually work for. Yeah. It's subtle. It's like it's a fine art. They never come out and tell you we're a terrible place to work. <laughs> but I mean, some of them do, but they generally don't. It's usually like they're subtle cues that after a while you start to learn like the code words for like, you know, able to work under like tight deadlines means like you're constantly going to be stressed out. Um, yes, God, like no, please. <laughs> As somebody who's interviewing, I would say, and not the smaller the company, I think the easier this is and the larger the company, perhaps the harder this is. But look for what you get as well as for what you want. Because sometimes you find during these experiences with people that they have a skill that you didn't pick them for on their resume that's going to be valuable in a different way that might not be directly related to, like perhaps, for example, perhaps they're not that great of a coder, but maybe they're a really, really good monkey thought translator, you know, or, or something like that where you thought you needed to hire a senior programmer, but maybe what you got is a mid-level programmer, but somebody that's really good at understanding what other people say and tying them together, something like that, you know, and, and that could actually bring a lot of business value and it might be something you didn't anticipate needing, but once you see it, if you can recognize it, you might, and that, I mean, that's, sorry, this is totally tangent from the, the real topic of the show, but, but I just, I just want to throw that out there. I think that's important. I had two horror stories uh, one of which is kind of tangential. One of is more like on point. So I'm going to start with that one first. So I did a interview with someone where I was supposed to interview with one person and I said, oh yeah, I know him. It'll be good to talk with him again. And then I got an email back like, oh, so that there's no conflict of interest, we're actually switching you to interview with this person instead. And then when the interview comes, I thought I was going to be interviewing for one position and the person that was interviewing me thought I was going to be interviewing for another position. And then we decided that the, the best thing to do with our mixed expectations was to do a little bit of this, this uh, live coding 
which wasn't supposed to be pair programming, but turned into do it my way pair programming, where I started out, like I do really poorly with contrived code problems anyway. Like if you give me a real world problem, cause I'm, I'm very much a user experience type person. So when I understand the real world use case, I like, I envision the code, right? But it was one of these contrived type of problems and I didn't realize that he was going to try to evaluate me on performance. I thought this was just going to be evaluating on thinking through the problem. And so I'm, I'm writing out the solution. He's like, well, is that the fastest way to do it? I'm like, well, no. And he's like, well, what's the fastest way to do it? I'm like, well, I wasn't really thinking about it from the perspective of the fastest way. I was thinking about it from the perspective of solving the problem that is at hand. And then, you know, we can go back and optimize it first. And he kept on like pushing me to like, well, why are you doing this? Why, why, why are you using an array rather than a hash object? And it, it like ultimately it got to a point where I was like, look, I need you to stop telling me how to do this. Let me work through my solution the way that I would work through it. And then afterwards, once I understand, once I know that I have understood the problem well enough to create a solution that is the cor a correct solution, I'm more than happy to go back and then fine tune it and optimize it. And he just like, that interview didn't go well. <laughs> but he... He, he like, that wouldn't work well for me either, though, AJ. Like, he wanted me to come up with like his specific solution that he already knew the answer to. And for me, like I needed to first understand the problem and know that I solved the problem correctly. Then going back and optimizing is pretty easy, you know. That was just that was just this thing where he kept on asking me questions and like, why don't you do this way? Why don't you do that? It was like the worst type of, of pair programming. That does not sound fun. <laughs> Yeah. And then I met him in person because this was online. I met him in person and I was like, I was like, oh yeah, you interviewed me. That was the worst interviewing experience I've ever had. That really went poorly. That wasn't scheduled well. And the evaluation was, was way off. <laughs> He's like, oh, it's okay. You can try again in six months. What? Yeah. That was his response. Wow. What a, yeah, what a putz. I mean, like I'm not quoting directly, but I said something to that effect that he definitely did say, well, we allow candidates to retry after six months was part of his answer to it, yes. I just don't want to work in a place where people are, like, arrogant. I don't think he was arrogant as much as I don't think he understood. I don't think the communication happened then either. He may have been really arrogant, but he, it didn't come across as arrogant. It came across as if, like, he missed it. I always say, like, dodged a bullet. <laughs> Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash javascriptjabber. Are we wanting to go to PIX? Yes. But Sounds like you're ready to go first. No, I was going to say <laughs> yes, but someone who's ready needs to go first. Chris, you want to go? Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can go first. So two for me this week. Uh, the first, I want to give a shout out to uh, this company called Enzo or Enzo. I actually don't know how to pronounce it. Rings. 
I got um, too fat for my wedding band. And we were down in Florida not too long ago. And with the humidity and everything, like my fingers swelled up so much that it was like cutting into my skin and just like really uncomfortable. But I don't like the idea of like just not having one on. And I didn't want to drop a couple hundred dollars on a replacement or get my own resized when I'm hoping at some point to like slim down a little bit and not have such pudgy little fingers and fit into my, my original wedding band. So they make these really cool, pretty affordable um, silicone rings that um, they have a little bit of stretch and give to them. They're super lightweight and comfortable. They come in some traditional colors, but also a bunch of like really fun colors and styles if that's more your thing. And uh, yeah, I've been really, really happy with it so far. It fits my meaty little fingers perfectly. So highly recommend them. And then the other thing, uh, just kind of as a, a personal project for me, I just launched this new, um, this new thing. So I run, I mentioned earlier on the show, I, I run this training program called the Vanilla JavaScript Academy, um, but it is a little expensive and it's really intense. It's like super well, time consuming. Eight You're weeks that of, guy? The Vanilla JS guy? That's you? <laughs> I know. Shocking, right? So it's, um, it's like eight really intense weeks of project-based work. And the thing people love about it is that it's project-based, but a lot of folks just don't have the time or you know, sometimes the money to make the investment to, to do it. So I created this new um, monthly project video series where if you want to get the same kind of thing, but you don't want to spend as much kind of like time on it, Every month you can get access to a couple of new JavaScript projects where I give you some starter templates, I tell you what we're going to try and do, and then you can either run off and do it on your own and then come back and watch a video of me working through the problem, or you can watch that first if you're like really stuck. But uh, the videos are also completely unscripted, so I don't actually try and solve it ahead of time. I just I come up with a project and then try and figure it out in real time and record myself. So there's a lot of like bugs and backtracking and live debugging that happens, which I've heard from folks is also kind of useful to see. So if that's something that sounds interesting to you, um, head over to vanillajsprojects.com to learn more about that. So far, I've been pretty happy with it. We're working on some, some really cool projects and uh, I think you might like it. And yes, I am, believe it or not, I apparently do stuff with vanilla JavaScript now. Who knew? That's it for me this week. Hey, Jay, your turn. All right. So my wife and I have had this problem where... For our wedding, we got this salt and pepper grinder set that's really tall. And at first, it seemed like it was too big. The tyranny of large salt and pepper shakers. Who has yeah. not been there before? <laughs> so not shakers, grinders. Okay. Oh, yes. Sorry. Sorry. And Costco has grinders, but they're not in a set. Like the peppers one way and the salts the other way, where like one is right side up and the other is upside down. I can't stand for that. Anyway. They're a little too large, but it turns out that she loves to use them for cooking because because they're so large, for some reason, it just, I don't know, makes it more awesome to grind it right over top of the, the frying pan or whatever. Well, the problem is this. I'm a man who likes salt at the table, you know? Like, I need to have salt at the table. And since this was a set, I kept on putting those back over towards the table, and I do other things like got her a bowl of salt. I got her a salt shaker. I got her... Like, like, so now there's like three or four other types of salt, but she always went back to the big grinders. And so finally I realized I'm solving the problem the wrong way. And the problem is there's so much variety in this particular area that I, I didn't make a, a decision and, and I stalled on it. But finally I made my decision. I got a smaller salt and pepper grinder set that are a little bit more well-suited for the table in the first place. And I told her that these must stay here absolute must, non-negotiable, 
these do not leave the dinner table because salt and pepper deserve to be at the dinner table. And you can do whatever you want with the other grinders now. Just don't touch mine off of this table. And I'm not that authoritarian about many things, but I, you know, my salt's important to me. So now we have two sets and I like them both. And so I'm going to link to those because if you've got that problem where, you know, one of you is hogging the salt over at the stove. You know, this literally does happen to us. I, I know I was picking on you, but this is legitimately a problem that I have too. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link both the tall set and the short set. And one of them has an option for like a medium set as well. But, you know, so you can go with either style, but, and, and you can get, now the, the flavor is not any different. Don't let people tell you that there's some sort of weird health benefit or the flavor superior with the, the charcoal salt versus the Himalayan salt versus the white salt. It's all about what color complements your kitchen table best. And there's no difference other than that. I promise you, science can prove it. If you, Have you tried all three of them though, AJ? I have tried different salts. There's a store in Williamsburg, Virginia that has like 20 different salts. They're all the same. They taste like salt. Anyway, but I am a fan of the multi the multi flavor peppercorn. So I'm going to link all that to you. You know, God bless. That's my pick for today. AJ, my favorite thing about your picks is that they always come with a story. Like, and I'm not I'm not being facetious here. I always like I learn a little bit more about the life of AJ with every pick. And that's why people watch the show. They turn on they turn on YouTube and fire up JavaScript Jabber so they can watch me talk about these things. Amy, you're up. I'm so excited about a couple of things this week that I think I'm going to save my programming picks and go with these. So the first one, things are winding down for me and at NPM. So I have a little bit of extra time on the weekends and I've been dying to um, take the Enneagram test, which like it takes a little bit of time. So I finally gave in and did that last weekend and very interesting to note. Um, let's see. What did I put in here? So it looks like I'm an eight. And so if people haven't done this, I think it's really, really, really interesting. I love doing like different personality tests and stuff like that. So that was cool. And then the other thing I'm going to do, as you guys can probably hear jingling in the background, like I went shopping this weekend too, and I bought my cats some new collars because they've like tore up the ones that they were wearing and these are special like instead of being fabric they're plastic so that like if a cat like scratches it they don't tear it up and so they didn't have them at the store but I had to order them online but somebody told me about them at the store so because I went to go get them new ones but you can get them on Amazon and they're from like Kitty Rama. I'll put links to both of this stuff in the show notes. And I think that's going to be it for me. And I guess with that said, it is time to wrap up. And we will catch you all next week. Bye. Cheers. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more. You guys have strong opinions on grills. Grills? Yeah, my grill is like a decade old and starting to fall apart and I need a new one. Don't get charcoal. No, it's always gas, but like infrared wasn't really a thing when I bought mine and I don't know if that's worth it. AJ, you're really into the science and engineering of stuff. Is infrared just hype or is it actually worth it? Mr. Solder JS over here.
Let me give you my professional opinion as someone who's never done any research into it or nor has a particular interest in grilling it. This is exactly the kind of opinion I was looking for. That's perfect. Yeah. Excellent. So when you think about visible light, you notice like you put your hand in front of the sun, your hand blocks the sun's rays. Now, infrared light is different because you put your hand in front of the sun, you can't see the infrared light, but the cancer cells in your body can. So... The infrared light is really instrumental, not only in giving you cancer, but also in making the cells jiggle in weird ways. Now, since the beef is dead, this is okay. It's completely safe. It's not going to give you any more cancer unless you burn the beef, because as we all know, burned meat is a carcinogen. But it's going to be more helpful in the cases in which the thickness of the beef corresponds to the wavelength of the particular infrared to give you the best searing flip over flop. How, how is it possible that this is your opinion with having done no research? Because what you just said is somewhat consistent with some of the actual research I've actually done. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I made it up. Just <laughs> like you did. Oh, the wavelength thing actually did come up. Like specifically, like I think it was charboil. Their wavelengths are not like the right one to give you the kind of cook you want or something. Like AJ, you're a genius, man. Thank you. And the most polite Twitter user I've ever met. Ha <laughs> <laughs>